you tell us about the picture that I used to promote this episode? So this picture was kind of inspired by, I don't remember exactly what the conversation was, but I wanted to just show that it's important to support your community. Um, so everything in this picture is basically something from someone in the community. So, you know, I have a friend in Hawaii that has a clothing company. And so I buy his clothes and, you know, uh, a shirt from another witch that I have. It's Sarah Lawless, who I have a giant witch crush on and have for ages. Um, and then, oh God, yes. <laughs> And then, you know, books from people in the community, you know, I mean, I buy books from people that I, I appreciate and really want to support. So it's, it's really important to support people in our community. And especially, you know, we all have that dream of being the witch that can just live off being a witch. So it's really important to support those who are trying to do that as well. Good times come and good times go and what they do, hold on to these bones and feathers, herbs and stone, words and weather, hearth and home. Hippie witch, hippie witch, magic with the switch of your mind, so kind. Hippie Witch, Season 3, My Favorite Number. Nice. Hi, thanks for joining me for Episode 486 of Hippie Witch, Magic for a New Age. My name is Joanna DeVoe, and I am the groovy creatrix behind Cake Ass Witch, putting the K in magic, and Hippie Witch, the show you are listening to right now. I also have a free ebook by that name, Hippie Witch, Peace, Love, and all that good shit. And you can pick up a copy of that at www.joannadevoe.com, where you will also find the show notes for this episode, which will include multiple links to today's extremely witchy and interesting guest, Kathleen Borealis. And there will be a link to a song, a witchy song. Speaking of witchiness, Merry Witchmas! It is Christmas Eve here in the United States as I am recording this for you. And as I like to say, Merry Merry Witchmas, Happy Holidays, and a blessed Yule. What I was trying to say before I got swept up in the holiday spirit is there is a song that is quite witchy called The Season of the Witch that I will be playing at the very end of this episode. So I hope you will stick around for that. And I really just want to hop into this interview pretty quickly here today because it is Christmas Eve. The kid and I are going to be making chocolate chocolate chip cookies. Vegan, gluten-free, with crushed pepper baked candy canes on top! And then we're going to watch Elf, because Tanner Golfball DeVoe very, very much still believes in Santa Claus. He believes. He's filled with the magic for Santa Claus, and so, <laughs> so his Elf. So we are going to enjoy some cookies and some Elf, but first, let's get to this podcast. Also, I really want to thank... Anyone who has supported the show over on Patreon this year especially, I really appreciate your support. Thank you so much. And thank you to new patrons, Allison DM, 
Jesse Rankin and Jennifer Stogren. I hope you guys are enjoying the bonus content. There's lots of content. It's reversed now. The public podcast is the bonus content now. <laughs> As things have evolved. They've evolved that way. Patreon is where I put most of my biz witchy energy these days. But I also really love doing this podcast because I love the interviews. I just think the interviews should always be free to the public. So thank you for helping to make that possible. And speaking of interviews, let's get back to focusing on the interview today. This is a really fun conversation because Kathleen is a scientist. She's a geologist, but for as scientifically minded as she is, it's also really touching to hear her talk about her, what I would describe as her poetic approach to magic because she is valuing the human interaction with a thing, a crystal to be specific, over its metaphysical properties. She's reveling in the mythology and the meaning that has accumulated over time rather than fussing over the facts, which is maybe exactly the opposite of the way you might expect a scientist to approach magic. So I think that's really interesting. She talks about having a preference for experience and I love this. I know she picked this up somewhere else, but I'm always going to remember it as the thing that I learned from Kathleen. That really stuck with me. She says science is the explanation and magic is the experience. That really clicked with me. We talk about what's it like to be a woman in science. She shares how to make a sugar jar for magic. And, oh, this is really fun, too. Grounding all the way to the center of the earth. Have you ever grounded all the way to the center of the earth? I've never thought of it before. Until now. Now I'm thinking, I've been grounding wrong all along. I should have been grounding all the way down to the center of the earth. Kathleen Borealis style. <laughs> so let's just get to it, shall we? Without any further ado, here she is, Kathleen Borealis. Hi, Kathleen. Welcome to Hippie Witch. Hi, thank you for having me. I almost fell over when I went to your Twitter account and I saw that you list yourself as a hippie witch. Yeah, there was some stand-up comedian, I'm trying to remember who it was, who said it was like, she called it like white hippie witch, like like granola eating white hippie witch. And I was like, oh yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I think it has to do with how I practice magic, but what I am interested with you is how you practice magic as somebody who works in science professionally. You are a witch yeah. and a scientist, and I think that's such a cool combination. Yeah, to me, I mean, I think because it's me and it's my life, it made perfect sense. So I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, so, you know, child of hippies <laughs> oh, oh yeah. and, um, I was just always really curious about the natural world and I got into paganism pretty young. And so when I went to college, I was just really curious and I just took a whole bunch of classes and just kind of followed the shiny is what I call it. Like just kept following things that I was interested in and ended up in science. 
to the surprise of almost everyone in my life. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. So paganism came first. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I, I have this, this story that, I mean, now that I look back on it, it is absolutely hilarious, but I remember, so growing up, my parents were very not religious. We did have, you know, kind of like the, the Northwest hippie kind of friend group that they were in. And I knew that I was much more of a religious person than they were. And at one point I went to, I would go to the library after school and I went to like the world religions section and I found like an encyclopedia of world religions and just started flipping through it and going like, that's not it. That's not it. (laughs) That's not it. Mm. And I found neo-paganism and that's how I was like, oh yeah, that's what I am. Why did that resonate with you? What was it specifically? Do you remember? I mean, now I I have the words to express what it is and it's the animism. So I would say that I've always been an animist and the ones that stood out most to me were things like paganism and Shintoism actually, because it's very tied into being connected and being part of the entire environment, the entire world. So to me, that's what it was, is it was the one I found. And if I'd found the word animism, I would have probably been like, oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, I, I evolved from pantheism to animism and then kind of back and forth. I just sort of sit in yeah. the middle. I prefer I prefer to choose animism. I like that belief, but I this is partly why you're so interesting to me, Kathleen. I am not a scientist. Well, I am like kind of a why and a how person. So I'll practice magic and then it works. And then I immediately spoil all future attempts at magic by going, why did this work? How did this work? (laughs) Or or the like, my favorite is where you're like, holy shit, that works. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's exciting. But then I always want to be like, let's take it apart. Let's reverse engineer it. Let's analyze it to death. And that is sort of a magic killer I have found. You have to really be in that childlike state of wonder for magic to work. Right. So, so the way that, the way that I tend to, to work is that, um, I use it kind of like, you know, when you're doing science and especially natural science, it's a very observational thing. So your raw data is usually observations and experiences. And so I definitely start with that. So if something works, I write it down as it's something that worked. And so a lot of the things that I have, I I don't have a book of shadows. I have a box of note cards. Mm. So I will write something down if I have something new. And then on the back, I'll write, like, I did it on this day, you know, it worked great, or I didn't really like that very much. So I have kind of, you know, I know what works for me, and that's how I've built it up. Yeah, you said something on your podcast recently. Let's let's give your podcast a shout out. What's oh, the name of your podcast? Yeah. I'm super bad at this, being a promotion person. Um, my podcast is called Borealis Meditation. And it's a natural science podcast for pagans and other spiritual people. Oh my gosh. I have to fight you right now. Can I stay on track and do that? You are not bad at promotions. This is literally how we're here. And I had a question about that. So maybe we'll jump around a little bit. Here's what I found so attractive about you is I had never heard of you before And I think a couple friends, but Nicole comes to mind, tagged me on a post that you did on Twitter saying, hey, who has a podcast and wants to have me on as a guest talking about 
I think it was perhaps Crystal specifically, but being, oh, a, yeah. being a witch and I was like, okay, well, when my people tag me, I pay attention, first of all, yes. because they love you for a reason. But I thought that's so ballsy to be like, hey, who wants to have me on their podcast? And then I've seen you. I started following you. And I've seen you say things like, hey, I'm here to be helpful. Use me. Use my knowledge. And I yeah. was like, that is so powerful. And it shouldn't be as powerful as it is because this should be more common for women to be like, hey, I know a thing. Yeah. Like, here's my brain. Ain't it sexy? I just thought that was so badass of you. And I guess that's why I would say you're a good marketer because you're like, this is what I have to offer. And it worked on me. I'm getting better at it. I started the podcast like 10 years ago. So at first I was pretty bad at the whole self-promotion thing, but I am definitely learning to be better at it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, part of the reason I say that is that as a scientist, you're supposed to do outreach. And there's a lot of people who are incredibly good at science communication, but I've also found that there's, I guess some, some scientists are perceived as being unapproachable, especially from, you know, the spiritual community. And so because I'm in both worlds, I have always wanted to kind of give back, especially since, you know, whenever I've had a really rough time, you know, my pagan community has really helped me out. And so, you know, what I can give back is, you know, all the years I've put into the study that I do. And so, you know, I kind of want to be that person in between that, you know, it's okay to ask questions. Because one of the things I find is that there's not really, you know, people are always afraid to ask stupid questions. And I don't really see them as stupid questions. I see them as gaps in your understanding because somewhere along the line, someone failed to explain something to you. Mm -hmm. And it's really fascinating kind of the jumps that people make because they're missing this one little teeny key piece of information. So, you know, I really enjoy answering questions and, you know, I learn a lot when people ask me questions. So I, I definitely really enjoy that. And this is the only outreach that I do. I don't do outreach in the broader science communication sphere, I do it very specifically and purposely for this community. That's so great. I love that you talk about the pagan community being there for you and supporting you and you wanting to pay them back because I think a lot of people, like when they leave Christianity, for example, yeah, that's the piece that makes it so hard. Definitely. The community that is, you know, part of your church and, And that exists in the pagan community too. People are awesome here. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't grow up in church, so I never had that growing up. So, you know, it's been really powerful to kind of find that. And, you know, when you're, when you're an academic and when you're in science, you do move a lot. And so it's really helped to have that kind of continuity because I do move every kind of four years or so. And it's really hard to uproot your entire life and move to a completely new place. Well, why do you move? What is, that's part of your job? Yeah. Yeah. So when, when you work in research science, you do tend to go where the jobs are or for degrees. So I've moved for jobs. I've moved for degrees and until you get to a certain point on the ladder. So maybe I can step back and explain kind of the the academic ladder. I think most people are familiar with getting an undergraduate degree. So you do your four years somewhere for college. Then in science, what you would normally do is you would either go straight into a PhD program or you'd do a master's and you would move for that. And master's in the U.S. are about two years. And so I did that. And then after that, I took a job. So I had to move for that. And then I 
then took another job. So I had to move for that. And what would normally happen is you, after you take a PhD, you would take a postdoc. So this is a postdoctorate position, which is normally research. And those are usually two to three years. And a lot of times if people are going into the academic track, so going back into academia and trying to get a tenure track position, you would take maybe two or three postdocs. So you're moving every couple of years. And, you know, we are very privileged to be academics, but that is very hard to uproot your life and move every couple of years. Mm. And I think that, I guess we don't really talk that much about how difficult that can be. And, you know, now because our, I guess because, because there's so many people that are kind of coming through the pipeline, you, it's not just moving, you know, within your country, it's international moves a lot too. Wow. So you must really value having an online community, I would imagine. Oh yeah. Yeah. I learned that it takes like a year or two to kind of like build a local community wherever you move. So for that first year, like I am so reliant on friends online. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how lonely it can be even in a big city when you don't know anyone. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think we're all having a little more loneliness than we're used to in 2020, in 2020. Um, I saw something on your website, like a motto of yours is the only constant is change. And I do, I believe that that is a hundred percent true, but also I can see why that could help you stay in the flow and, you know, not, not dig your heels in with resistance to the next change. Yeah. And it, it is something that I find that humans struggle with a lot. I think that we are, if you go kind of to like our, our biology and our roots, you know, we are pattern recognition creatures. And so we don't like things to constantly be changing because the best way to recognize movement is in kind of like, if you think about animals, right, you know, they look at a, a, a field of view and they're looking for movement in order to identify things. So we like our world to be static and then we identify movement. So the fact that everything is constantly moving can be kind of, um, it, it can be really difficult for people. And I think that the most, the best example of this is in an earthquake, people often say that it feels like the, you know, the, the world has shifted underneath them and it is always moving. It's just that sometimes we are on the same time scale as that moving. And it's very difficult as a human to feel the ground underneath you move. Oh, like it's it, so disorienting. Yeah, it's very disorienting. So, you know, the it it is it is interesting, you know, how much that is can apply to a lot of different aspects of of your life as as just as a person. Yeah, I think of magic as change. I think life is change, magic yeah. is change on purpose. I'm really interested in how people change their minds and can change their life from that point and how freaking hard it is. Like not only do we resist change that happens to us, but I think a lot of people get in the way of their own magic because we think we want a thing we, and then the change starts to come and we're like, holy shit, what is happening? Everything's falling apart. This is not what I want. But really it yeah. is like things are moving and we just really freak out when things start to change. Even when we are the initiator, it's fascinating. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And one of the other things I talk about is this whole like, there's a difference between like knowing something rationally and internalizing something. And so you can know something, but you haven't internalized it. And that difference is, I mean, it's profound. Oh my God, so yes. if you, 
learn something about the world, but it doesn't feel true to you. Like you can rationally know it, but it doesn't, you know, that, that difference is, is huge. And so, you know, a lot of education is trying to kind of like bridge that and kind of like move understanding into, you know, a really deep understanding. And that's why I repeat stuff a lot too, is because repetition helps that too. So that's, that's another aspect that I find is really interesting is, you know, the world around us, we can know something and then, you know, but you don't really know it. Mm -hmm. You said something on your podcast. I'm remembering I'm closing a loop. I, I leave a lot of open loops. I get going. (laughs) I'm like tangent, tangent, tangent. But I remember what I was trying to say many beats ago, which is I heard you say on your podcast, you were quoting something I think that you had seen on Instagram about like magic is experience. Yeah. Is this ringing a bell? Yeah. Yeah. It was a quote that I found on Instagram that was like, science is the, what was it? It was like science is the observation or or the explanation and magic is the experience. Yeah. That's so useful. Yeah. And, and to me that really rings true because just because we understand how a magnet works doesn't make it any less like mysterious and cool and weird. Right. Yes. Yeah. Like, we we've gotten to the point where we understand how a lot of things work. But I mean, if you think about it before people knew what gravity was like, how weird is it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then once you open like the can of worms, that is why you may never get to the bottom of it. You might know how, oh. but then the next, I'm a why person too. I'll be yeah. like, but why, yeah. but why? And then it's like, what is God? Like it just turns into like a whole thing. I know. So I did a recent episode talking about ley lines and, you know, one of the, I I get asked about ley lines a lot. And it's one of the things that I have a really hard time with because I immediately want to say, okay, well, this is what you've given me as the information. Now I want to see how this ripples out. You know, I'm a geologist, so I work on really big timescales. So, you know, if you have a line and it's connected to the crust, right? Crust moves over time. So wouldn't it be deformed with plate movement? Mm. Or is it not in the crust and it's underneath? So, you know, like to me, I, I will always take something like that. And so that's why I really value kind of the raw experience. To me, I like the raw experience more than the explanation. And I think that especially in the new age community, people have gone kind of whole hog on the explanation part of it. Yeah. And I think that that's not, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's useful. I actually, I think, I think much more, what's more powerful is your personal experience. Yeah. I think it's useful in as far as it empowers you to take a risk, to take some action, to give it a shot, you know, and be like, here are the instructions. Step one, step two, step three, you know, knock yourself out. (laughs) I think that's useful, but yeah, you kind of can't get to the bottom of some questions and most of them one leads to the next leads to the next and that just becomes this sort of like armchair expert overanalyze yeah. everything never actually get to performing the magic exactly and i think you know that's one of the things that you know to get on my little one of my soapboxes i think that's one of the things that really bugs me with the current way that stuff you know conversations about crystals are going is that it's very much like this is this specific thing that it does to your body. And I think that if you're going to make that claim, I want to see the study mm-hmm. first of all. Mm-hmm. And otherwise I just want to hear your experience, you know, holding this rock made me feel X, not like holding this rock opened this and did this and cleared this and, you know, moved this. Like 
I, I don't think that that's useful. I think what's more useful is when I hold this rock, this is how I feel. And having people have those experiences without kind of those preconceived ideas as to what's supposed to happen. Because I think that some people will see that and then they may pick up a specific crystal and it may have been expensive. And then they're like, well, crap, now I don't, I don't feel anything. So like, I don't get it. Right. Yeah. You know, I have mixed feelings about this because the way I often explain it is it's like Dumbo's feather. It's a placebo effect. So when you're yeah. brand new and you know nothing about magic at all and you discovered, you know, your first book of crystals and it tells you that citrine will energize you. If you're just fully in the belief of it and you have that beginner's mind, it might because, yeah. because you so believe it, right? And I have to be like, why? How? Is this true? And then it stops working. But I, I definitely, with all the different things I've learned, I'll go through a period of, wee, this is so cool. It works. And then the moment I'm yeah. like, how or why it all falls apart. But see, to me, what's more interesting is kind of like the history of how citrine has been used and what it's traditionally been associated with. Like, to me, that's much of a better way to kind of get into it is, you know, if you have a specific, like, say, amethyst used to be used as, you know, I think it was the Romans who would make cups out of amethyst and then they claim that you wouldn't get drunk. To me, that's an awesome story, right? That and that cool. gives much more of a human, like, to me, I like the history of the human interaction with it more than this kind of like clinical, this is just what this does kind of thing. So I've been reading this book that Corey from New World Witchery sent me. And it's from, I, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but it's from like 1913. And it is absolutely insanity. Like just the amount of crazy shit that is presented as truth that we now are like, um, pretty sure that that is a very racist statement. Uh, okay. But they were talking about, you know, kind of, this is more looking at the spiritualist time frame about a woman who was, it was presented as a seer and they gave her, I think it was quartz and she had a seizure and like the extremes of that time of what they were like, Oh, so then this is what this does. Like we require different amounts of confirmation. And at that point, in order to say that crystals did something, it was like, this one, she held it and it gave her diarrhea. Like, I mean, it was just so extreme. It was crazy. <laughs> My personal feeling with crystals is I came to a place where it's like, I care not if there's a metaphysical property. I just think it's cool that the earth makes this stuff. Oh, yeah. And my favorite is lapis lazuli. Lazuli. Yes. People will say it different ways. I don't know. Let's just say lapis. I, it's yes, just lapis incredible that that comes out of the earth and then it does have that neat history you know it's yeah it's been used for all kinds of things over over the what would you say how how how, do you know how far back our use of these things dates um so we run out of written record is basically the answer we have archaeologic evidence of rocks being used but it's very difficult to figure out why certain rocks were used for different things. And especially since they're pretty, I mean, you really can't discount the it's pretty aspects yeah, yeah. when it comes to rocks. And so it can be really difficult to kind of it's, yeah, it is. It's very difficult to kind of see what metaphysical associations it may have had versus just it being aesthetically really 
pleasing when you get into the archaeologic record. But I mean, they, you can find rocks in archaeologic settings going, you know, way, 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 way back. And if you think about it, you know, even the Stone Age, those were very specific types of rocks that were being used. And so those were probably very valued for their physical characteristics too. So, you know, something like obsidian or a flint, this is a very specific type of rock and it's not found everywhere. Humans' history with rocks is, is, is very long. We definitely run out of a written history or a written explanation as to why for some of these, I think. And they go way back into kind of the myths. myths Doesn't it feel so human? There's something so human thinking about a person, a caveman with a rock in their hand. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Geology is definitely one of those fields where you just start to just love all kinds of rocks. And it may be because it looks cool. It may be because you know how they formed and you're like, that rock is awesome. And, you know, you start to kind of really appreciate different things about different rocks. And so, you know, I don't tend to buy crystals. I tend to go outside and pick up rocks. And those are the ones that I work with the most. I do... In terms of like the traditional crystals, what I work with is I work with magnetite, so lodestone and pyrite. Those are the ones that I work with the most in magic, specifically for any of their associations. But I use magnetite for attraction because it attracts things because it's magnet and pyrite looks like money. You know, it's, it's fool's gold. So to me, the majority of things can come down to like, are you doing prosperity? Are you doing attraction stuff? You know, so that's what I use those for. And then everything else is kind of, the story attached to it to me is what's really important. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you can straddle both worlds. Do you have a favorite rock or crystal or just those two that you mentioned? Um, So those are the ones that I work with the most in terms of favorites. I do have usually at least one rock with me. I'm trying to see if I have one on my desk right now, but I have one that's in my purse that is a piece of basalt, which is a type of volcanic rock. And it looks a little bit like a scapula, so like a shoulder blade. And it's smooth on one side and rough on the other side. And so I have it with me at work a lot. And I can just hold it in my hand and kind of like, um, kind of like as a fidget tool, mm. you know? So it's, it's got that, that different textures, which are really appealing. And then, you know, every year I tend to try to buy, I, I usually buy at least one, but I buy mineral samples more than I buy crystals for use. So I also have a bunch of rocks from trips I go on. I tend to pick up rocks or, you know, if we're going to somewhere that's interesting geologically, I will pick something up. So I tend to have a lot of rocks that have personal stories to me, but then I also know the geologic history, which is to me really interesting because some of these minerals in order to get them, you have to basically have one type of rock, you smush it down, under the crust, you subject it to lots of pressure and temperature and it comes back up as something new, which to me is just like the coolest thing ever. Mm, yeah. That gives me all the like, as above, so below, as within, so without kind of feels like, what does yeah. that say about the creation process? Like under all this pressure and also just the energy, energy moves and transforms. It's so yeah. cool. How has that informed your magical practice being a person who collects mineral samples does that circle back on your witchcraft or are they kind of separate things in your mind so I think that the mineral samples that I have are definitely more my science side to me it's nice to have a good type example of something 
they're, they're pretty. And, but I, you know, I don't feel much from them. I feel much more connected and I feel much more like I work much more with rocks that I know where they came from. You know, I know the history of them. And also, you know, getting on my other soapbox, a lot of, you know, I've worked in the mining industry before. Um, I did that as a stint in between degrees. And I know a lot about how, you know, kind of sketchy it can be. And so I prefer if I'm going to work with something to have it be something where I know the chain of handoff, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, there, there finally been kind of articles coming out about where some of these minerals come from and depending on where they're mined and where their location is, these mines can be very detrimental to the people that are actually mining. And, you know, there can be children collecting minerals and, you know, they can be in really bad conditions and it can be really difficult to trace those back because historically there hasn't been a lot of interest in that supply chain. And um, so when I buy a mineral sample, I'm accepting that I don't know where it came from unless I'm buying it from someone I know collected it. (laughs) Right. Is there what are the implications for the earth itself, this industry? Right. So I think with the mining industry and with just extraction in general, there's this really big kind of not in my backyard attitude, which I understand. But at the same time, when you push industry like that out of developed countries that have things like environmental regulations, they go to other countries where they can kind of do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when you have a lot of your mining supply chain outside of kind of the Western world and in these smaller countries, the cheaper way is usually not the environmentally friendly way. And so, you know, economics takes over and things are done that are very harmful to the natural environment where they are and also harmful for the populations living around them. So I kind of have spent a lot of time thinking about it. We're, we're always going to be mining something. There's this bumper sticker in Alaska that says, if it can't be farmed, it must be mined. So it's raw resources that we've always needed. We've always mined, you know, you can go back and look at these like really, really old pits that were dug to get chert in like the UK. So we are a species that's always been mining the earth. It's just a question of how we do it. And to me, it's really important that it's done well. There is the technology to do it responsibly. It's just more expensive. And so as consumers, we need to prioritize that as opposed to cheap. I definitely want to know how we can do that. But I'm also curious to know, is the pretty a byproduct of the mining or has it become become the point? I'm sorry, the what? The the pretty, the collecting, the, oh, oh, I I need this for this metaphysical property. That is that the point in some of this mining or is it the byproduct? Like, well, we're going in anyway. We're going to set aside this for this little industry over here. We've always mined these, these locations for, for the um, specific minerals. So this has always kind of happened. You know, you have these amazing cases in like uh, the, I'm thinking of like the Smithsonian or the museum in Vienna that have these amazing minerals. So there's always been interest in minerals and especially, you know, historically a lot of these have been mined for, for jewelry. So this would be the gem quality stuff. I think the crystal industry has definitely taken off and it is huge at this point. And so that has broadened it out into different locations, especially now I'm seeing a really big trend towards kind of these locale names. So a specific mineral, but named for the location. So you end up with the same crystal technically, but it has a different name because it's from a different location. Mm. So people are definitely starting to kind of get in on that 
market. And so it is spreading a lot. I think the demand is huge and it definitely has pushed some of these places, especially since there's some historically used crystals that are a type locale. And so they're only mined in one location. So then it becomes kind of like a rarity thing, right? So if, if you mine out that location and you don't have another deposit, then they become very expensive. So I think that there's always been collecting of minerals and crystals. I think that the industry has kind of exploded in the last couple of I don't know how long, but probably in the last 10 to 20 years, it's definitely exploded. Well, for people that are concerned about the people that work in and around these mines and the environment, are they able to be consumers if they don't go out and find their own minerals? Like how do, how do they do that? So my suggestion has always been, I mean, it doesn't really, you can't really do it right now, but these, you know, a lot of times there'll be local rock and gem shows. And people who are rock hounds who go out and collect minerals will go out and then sell things that they find. And usually there are some cool small deposits of minerals wherever you are. And so your local rock hounds will know where they are and they are the ones that have gone out and gotten it. And just asking where something is from, you know, starts to kind of, you know, it it introduces into the economy of it, this interest in where things come from. So you can ask someone, where did you get this? Where is this from? And if it's, I got it from a supplier, then, you know, that's the answer of your question. But have you asked your suppliers where they get them from? You know, that kind of thing. Just be really curious. I would say the most important thing is to be curious about it because the more we're curious about it, the more information will be available. Uh, Because there hasn't historically been a lot of interest, there's very little information on a lot of this stuff. So the people who go out and, you know, are the middleman know where a lot of these mines are and they kind of know the conditions of some of them. But a lot of these things just trade hands so many times. But now you can start to kind of find suppliers who will go specifically out and give money directly to the people who are mining um, Hmm. or went out and found it themselves. You can find them. So it just takes being curious and asking questions. And you know, if you go to your local rock and gem show and buy a bunch of stuff that's from your local area is, you know, as a witch, you are using things that are from right around you. So it's going to have a much more powerful connection to where you are physically. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of focusing on where you are. You know, I would much rather work with rocks that are where I am physically than a pretty crystal from, I don't know where. How far and wide have you traveled the world? Do you feel like every time you move to a new location it's an opportunity to connect with with that land or are you very much like hey this is where I'm from these are the parameters (laughs) that I've been born into yeah so you know as I've been doing the podcast I've lived in um, I'm in Southeast Asia right now um, but I also lived in Hawaii and Alaska and so I feel like each place has taught me something different. Alaska taught me that the wheel of the year is definitely tied to a specific region mm. and it doesn't really work when you're in Alaska. <laughs> it's really hard to celebrate the spring when it's like negative 30. So, um, that's funny. it definitely taught me to localize everything to where I am. And it is very different connecting to the environment depending on where you are. So I'm in a, big city right now. And it was very difficult for me to connect and work here as opposed to in Hawaii. I mean, Hawaii is just amazing. 
So Hawaii was much easier for me to kind of ground and connect. It, it's just very alive. I mean, there's an active volcano. So I was just going to say, don't you have a thing for volcanoes? Because I've heard you, I have not heard a lot of what you've talked about. And even within that, I've heard you mention volcanoes here and there. Is that a special thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I grew up around Mount St. Helens and I definitely, as a small child, tried to steal rocks from Mount St. Helens. And (laughs) it is illegal to take any rock from any national park. Just throw that out there. If you're in a national park, it's illegal to pick up a rock. That doesn't mean I haven't done it. (laughs) I think every geologist has, and we're always like, no, we're geologists. It's fine. Mm -hmm. But definitely as a kid, I tried to pick up a rock in front of a ranger and got yelled at. So I, I have a very long history with volcanoes. And to me, volcanoes and earthquakes are the most fascinating aspect of the planet because it's basically geologic time on our time scale. So we can actually experience it. So much of geologic, you know, the geology of our planet is so slow that we don't have a way to kind of interact with it at all but earthquakes and volcanoes they're on our time scale so to me this is giving me saturn vibes i love saturn and i think of saturn as father time and it's sort of this grounding the hard lessons of life things are slow and what you're saying is really making me think about that yeah so if you think about it every point on the earth is moving The rate is usually about centimeters per year, but everyone is on a plate and that plate is moving. You don't really have a way to feel that movement, but when there's an earthquake, you feel it. (laughs) Yeah. It's like a little glimpse of like, this is what's happening all the time. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, same with volcanoes, you know, they're, they're kind of just degassing and releasing heat from the inside of the planet. And, you know, that's a process that's just happened for, the whole history of our planet, you know, so, you know, billions of years, but we get to experience it. Uh, This is also so human. When you think about like somebody, (laughs) there's a lot going on that you can't see under the surface. Things are moving, pressure is building. And then it seems like out of the blue, there is an event, but oh no, it has been building for some time. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's another part of what I do is I I look at kind of um, trying to, you know, the way I would describe my research topics is that I'm very interested in helping humans live with the planet. Um, We tend to sometimes feel like we want to bulldoze over things, you know, living in Hawaii, I've heard crazy suggestions of, you know, when we had a lot of vogs, so this is volcanic fog coming out of the summit. People Wait were like, what is this? Vlog? Oh, it's called vog. It's like a volcanic fog. It's just the gases that come out. And it's, it's, it was really obnoxious. You know, if it was really thick, it would like annoy your eyes and your throat. And people would be like, can we just like put a plug in the volcano? <laughs> it's like, it doesn't work that way. No, that's bad. That builds pressure and then it goes boom. So no, but you know, it's, it's this, this, wanting to have things be nice and contained for us. And so my research interest is very much on like helping people live with the planet, right? You know, we, mm. we can't fight against it. We have to figure out how to live with it. So I'm very interested in things like if you look at kind of earthquakes worldwide, uh, if you look at, you know, something like the, the best example I can think of is, is, you know, the Haiti earthquake and the Japan earthquake. The, the Haiti earthquake is considered kind of n- not large in terms of earthquakes. 
But because of the way all the buildings were built, there was, you know, wide scale destruction. Where something like in Japan, you have a much larger earthquake, but the buildings are actually built for it. And so they don't all just collapse. So, you know, it takes money to do that. But I think it shows that we can live with the earthquakes and plan for them, you know, because it's not something that you have to think about every day. But if you live like on the West coast of the U S it's, it is a constant, it's there, it's going to happen. It's just kind of a matter of when, and if you're prepared for it, it's not such a big deal. You know, it's still, it is a big deal, but like if you're prepared for it and all of your buildings don't fall down, then it's much easier to pick up and keep going with life. I love that you have a sense of mission. I can definitely see how these two, being a witch, being a scientist, how these two things are congruent for you because they're both aligned with this mission. And you were saying something earlier about like stories informing magic. And I wonder as a scientist, how certainly you must have come across tons of mythology and stories for the very fact that like this generation is like, yeah, you can't plug the volcano up because when you do this bad thing happens. Also bombing lava flows doesn't work. We've tried that. I don't even know what that I've never heard of VOG. I'm very excited. I learned a new word and what in the heck is bombing? What are you doing? I'm trying to remember which eruption it was, but at one point in Hawaii, they wanted to divert one of the flows, and so they dropped bombs on it. And oh God, we're so ridiculous sometimes. <laughs> and it's just like it's just one of those things where it's you know it's like well we tried it it didn't work guys. Um, oh. But I had a, a friend of a friend of mine was out running, and he found he was like oh this is a really cool lava tube. He went in and he found a bomb like embedded in the lava, and he's like I'm gonna need to report this to someone. <laughs> Okay, so this, you said something I came across somewhere, you talking about being in a male-dominated industry. This is why we need more women in science. Not because men don't have tons to offer, but also if there were more women, we have something different to offer, and maybe you would come to the conclusion to not bomb a volcano. (laughs) I feel like if there were more women on the board, they would be like, maybe this isn't a good idea, friends. Yeah, maybe, maybe let's, uh, I don't think that'll work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've seen women scientists like shouting each other out on Twitter, like some really good hashtags get going. And yeah, it's extremely inspiring to see that. What's your experience been like specifically as a woman in science? So I was incredibly fortunate to have an amazing undergraduate and graduate program. So I think my undergraduate two thirds of my class were women. So and about the same for my graduate program. So I've always been around really strong women. And my undergrad advisor was a woman scientist who's just a badass. And, you know, a lot of my professors were women. So it was a really good mix. And so it was always, there was never any question that women could be scientists in my undergraduate and my graduate program. In my graduate program, you know, my advisor was male, but we would have conversations about what we call the leaky pipeline. So, you know, he's, he's graduating two thirds women, but then he can't get that proportion to apply for jobs on a tenure track position. So trying to figure out, we would have conversations about what might be a reason why women are dropping out and how would we work on that and make it you know, make it easier for women to kind of get to that applying for a tenure track position. And 
you know, that school did such a good job, but it's, you know, now that I've kind of gone through another couple of universities, I can see where that's not the same everywhere. You know, when I work in my field is specifically is very male dominated and I'm very used to being the only woman in the room. And there's, there's a movie that just came out. I think it's called picture scientist and it's really good, but it talks about how, you know, women can tend to end up with kind of like the housekeeping role in a research group you know, just out of default, you know, we're the ones that think of it, you know, for example, the other day I was like, how do we get someone to mop our lab? Like, it's disgusting. (laughs) Like somebody please tell me who we have to call to get this thing cleaned. Right. But you know, none of the guys I worked with thought of it. So have you noticed a distinct difference between going to school with two thirds women and now being in a field that's male dominated? Uh, Am I assuming correct that that would be a different vibe? It is a very different vibe. Yeah, it, it is very different. I don't really know how to put it into words. Maybe this is part of the reason, like I said at the beginning, that kind of attracted me to you is that you had this kind of badass, like, hey, I have things to offer. Pick my yeah. brain. Let me be helpful. I feel like I tend to actually get along really well with men because they're so straightforward like that. Right. And I appreciate it. It takes a lot of guesswork out. It makes me feel comfortable. Do you feel that being in a male dominated industry empowered you that way? Or is that a trait you've just always had? I think it's definitely something I've had to learn. I've learned that if I'm not my own cheerleader, no one else will be. I think that there's, there's this weird kind of dynamic in science where a lot of the women that came before me are these like very badass Rosie, the riveter, like strong, strong women with like strong personalities and, you know, very, upfront about things. And that's kind of the, you know, you have to act male to kind of succeed kind of thing. And then there's the other stereotype of being kind of the very stereotypically female. And it's very difficult if you're not naturally that really strong personality type, you definitely learn that you need to be like that to be heard because no one's going to, you know, like ask you, you have to kind of push yourself to the forefront. And I have seen colleagues of mine who are traditionally very femme get kind of like made fun of for getting dressed up and wearing heels to the office. You know, people are like, why are you wearing heels to the office? So there is kind of this, we have more women now, but how you are a woman, I think is what we really need to work on too, is because there is this stereotype that yes, you can be a woman in science, but you have to be kind of male. Yeah, Um, I definitely think that that's, changing across the board everywhere. But when I think of two scientifically minded women, I don't know if they identify as scientists. I think of Jane Goodall and Temple Grandin. Temple, because she has autism. My son has autism and it was really exciting to see her contribute so much and to be so respected for her contributions, which a hundred percent are not in a stereotypical way, the way she communicates and got her ideas across or even discovered them. And then with Jane, she was able to, she is able to connect with these creatures because she doesn't go in with any ego and she's very soft and open and receptive. So I, I think that there's value in the whole spectrum. We just need better representation. Yeah. And I think Jane definitely stands out in my mind as kind of an anomaly not a lot of female scientists feel comfortable being soft like that. You we know? would be missing out on so much good stuff yeah. if, if there wasn't a Jane Goodall. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, 
it, it is really interesting because, you know, we are at this tipping point, I think, where we have a lot of women coming through the bottom part of the pipeline and trying to figure out how to keep people in it. And, you know, there is the issue of sexual harassment, I think, in science. But I also think the, so the documentary I just watched, it was really good about talking about it's an iceberg, right? So the most obvious and the most visible would be the sexual harassment. But there's this whole range of things underneath the water that are these little things that kind of like pick at you and kind of really serve to undermine your confidence in yourself and mean that you maybe not go for that really big grant, you know, Mm -hmm. because you don't feel like you're good enough for it, you know? So I think- What's the name of that again? Can you shout that out? I believe it's called Picture a Scientist. It just came out and it's about, it's about women in science. And specifically, there was a group at MIT who basically pointed out early on that women in the STEM fields were basically getting less lab space and were getting paid less and kind of went to the, the, the kind of the, the, we started there and we're still working on it kind of thing. So it was really good to watch and also talks about some of the, the darker sides of what can happen. And especially since I think what people don't realize about science is it, it is basically all about networking still and who, you know, and you know, when you're doing a degree, you are very dependent on your advisor and there is a big power dynamic. So especially if you're working for a very well-known scientist, they have basically the power over your entire career. It's so interesting because I don't typically think of a scientist as being like super social. I think of like a nerd who's really into yeah. their work and can get lost in it. So th- that I can see that being problematic for some people that are really gifted in that field. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've worked for people who are not the best scientists, but they are damn good at selling themselves. And so they are very successful. Um, and I know people who are amazing scientists who are dropping out because they're, you know, that's not who they are, you know, and specifically, you know, my husband doesn't drink. And a lot of these conferences are all about like socializing over beer and going to bars. And, you know, that's how you kind of meet people and kind of get into these networks. And, you know, it's also for women, not very comfortable to go to a bar with a bunch of men that you don't know. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Good point. And yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, trying to kind of rework how science is done. I, I thought that it was based on, you know, your work as a scientist and it was kind of disheartening to realize how much of it is still just networking. Yeah. Maybe that, maybe you find that wherever you go. I think so. I think so. I think we think it's very like, you know, idealistic and, and, you know, everyone is here to kind of, you know, for the betterment of human knowledge and you're you're judged on your work and it's, it's just like everything else. Mm, Yes. Well, let's, cause I can see we're running out of time. Let's try to pivot to magic and I'll, I'll try to do it gracefully by saying, does this at all come into play with the career you have found yourself in, in terms of setting an intention? Did you use magic to get there or did you have a sense of synchronicity that brought you there into the position that you're in? Right. I definitely do use magic uh, for my career. (laughs) Yay. Corey and I have this joke, you know, he'll say like, oh, I did this and it'd be like, "Mm, witchcraft, huh? And he'll be like, (laughs) (laughs) I use it a lot for, you know, when we do, so I do peer review. And so you have other people judging you. So I sugar jar people all the time. (laughs) 
Okay, now you have to explain a sugar jar for everybody who's going, what is that? So a sugar jar is basically, the idea is that you're sweetening someone towards you. So a honey jar would be like, if you want, like romantic attraction, but sugar is just kind of like to sweeten the relationship a little bit. So especially if you know that there's someone who is reviewing your work, who you maybe have had a tiff with, you know, and you don't want that to judge that, you know, have their judgment. So you would basically, you do a, a, um, a name paper or a petition and you put it in the jar of sugar and then you burn candles on it. Love. And so I do that a lot for proposals. I do that for, um, papers that I submit just to kind of, you know, it's not that I'm like trying to push it and be like, I want this submitted. It's like, I want the person to have warm fuzzies and be excited to read my work and, you know, approach it at either neutral or with good feelings towards me. Yeah. It's a road Um, opener, greasing the wheels a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, because I very much value my work for my work and I want to be valued for my work, but I do know that it's a lot of human connection. So I just want to make sure that, you know, if the person, you know, this anonymous person who's reviewing me is someone I maybe got in a tip with, um, or argued with, um, or maybe I disagreed with their paper in my paper, you know, that it's not, they're not having a lot of negative emotions towards me when they go in to review my work. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time, the way I frame something like that in magic is that may this be received or may this land at a yeah. time, time where their heart is open and they're feeling generous and super present. I kind of concentrate on, because people change from moment. Speaking yeah. of everything changes and the only constant is change. People change all the time. Timing is magical. So I tend to focus on that. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of my, my work is, you know, in terms of magic is connecting with, you know, my environment and the planet. So when I do groundings, I do groundings all the way to the core. Mm. Um, so I work with a lot of people. I think when they do grounding, they work kind of with the crust and, you know, the biologic layer is what I would call it. And I work with the whole earth. So, you know, I would say that spiritually and professionally, I work with trying to understand the messages of the planet and understand the planet. And so... That is so interesting. I've never considered that ever. <laughs> the crust versus the core and all of that. And and I did try to dig to China in the school playground. And I did have <laughs> that thought, what happens when I reach the middle? <laughs> It, very hot. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I wasn't thinking that. I was just thinking, how long will it take, and when do you know you get to the center? Because at one point, you're not digging to the middle; you're digging to the other side. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's so yeah. cool. That's so cool, Kathleen. Why do you sing when you do magic? That's another question I had for you. Um, before I was a scientist, I was a musician, and I, my parents are musicians. So, to me. Music is one of the fastest ways to tap into emotion. I think that music kind of can bypass the rational side of your brain and go straight to what we consider sometimes the like uh, the deep primordial biologic root of our brain, you know, that kind of the deep animal side of it. So to me, it's much easier for me to channel a specific feeling or a specific energy if I'm singing or playing music, but singing is the easiest because you don't need an instrument. You already have it. Mm. So I, I do find that it's much easier for me to do the work that I want to do with music. You're such a well-rounded witch. 
<laughs> can you give us can you give us some URLs for people driving so they can find you later when they land wherever they're going to land? Yeah, so my website is catborealis.com and borealis like the aurora borealis because mm-hmm. I started doing all this when I was in Alaska. I'm also catborealis on Twitter and Instagram. And I have a Facebook page, but I haven't been on Facebook very much lately. So I'm usually on Instagram or Twitter. I try to keep resources and things like that on my website. And that has links to my podcast, which is should be in every imaginable podcast catcher. I think I got them all. So that would be Borealis Meditation Podcast. Yay. Awesome. Okay. So I always end with one question and you can answer it however you like, whatever comes top to mind. Okay. What is one tip you have for creating the kick-ass life of your dreams? Ooh, that is a very good question. Um, I would say if you find something that works for you, practice, 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 practice. So if you have a meditation that you really like, there's nothing wrong with just doing it over and over and over again. And I would also say just being really open to the world around you and learning to try to be comfortable with change. That's a big one. I would double down on that one. Yeah. And especially this year, I think this year has been the really big lesson in change. Oh my gosh. Has it ever? Yes. A hundred percent. Thank you so much. I know you're super busy. So thank you for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was super fun. It was super fun. I love the mashup of witch and scientist. I think that is so cool. And I did not know that she was a musician in a past life. Also very cool. And speaking of musicians, as promised, I will now play a song for you from a Wiccan, a singer-songwriter from Dublin, Ireland. Her name is Ursula Elms Fahey, and her song is Season of the Witch. I feel like every season is the season of the witch. Merry Witchmas to you all, and a happy, happy Yule. Much love. Peace.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.